Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour, Monday, February the 1st, 2021. This is Air Force veteran David Corey, along with my co-host, Richard Hurley. Thank you for joining us this evening. We've got a great show for you tonight, and to get things rolling, let's first go over to Richard Hurley. Hello, Richard. How you doing? Hey, good, David. How are you? And good evening, everybody. Out there in Radio Land, we've lots of information, news for you veterans and you, and the families of veterans, so stay tuned. I want to remind everybody that this is a uh, call-in show. We, we welcome your views, your comments, and your questions. Uh, please take advantage of it. You know, share some information. Uh, we're all better off if we all communicate about veterans' issues and, and what's going on with the VA and how the VA is, is helping you or not helping you or the frustrations that you're having with, with the VA. I mean, I hear it every single day from veterans about all the problems that they're having with with the VA and trying to get the disability compensation. So if you want to call us, call us at one triple eight six two seven six zero zero eight. Again, that number is one eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. Pick up the phone, pick up the phone right now and give us a call. Back to you, David. Thanks, Richard. We have several segments in our show this evening. Uh the first segment, we've got a couple tapes and some discussion about uh a big event 30 years ago, veterans will remember. That was the beginning of Operation Desert Storm. We've got a couple tapes courtesy of the VA. In our second segment, uh, we've got uh, a tape from the VA regarding uh, a homeless outreach program uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida, just an example of one of, of uh, an endless number of VA homeless outreach programs on the country. And then in our segment after that, we have quite a bit of, of news of various uh, topics. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, in this first segment, uh, we'll begin our show with remembering the events of 30 years ago, January of 1991. Wow, 30 years already. It was the beginning of the combat actions in the first Gulf War. Of course, they didn't call it the first Gulf War then because we didn't know there was going to be a second one. But it was Operation Desert Storm. The United States led a coalition of about 35 nations against Iraq. Uh, military operations as far as preparation for that combat had actually begun uh, in August of 1990. That was called Operation Desert Shield. And then once the shooting began, they changed the name into Operation Desert Storm. It was all in response to Iraq's invasion of the small neighboring country of Kuwait. That invasion was on August the 2nd of 1990. And within a week... Operation Desert Storm was launched with the United States sending over uh, tens of thousands and eventually building up to hundreds of thousands, more than a half a million troops in that part of the country in, in Saudi Arabia and the, and the whole Arabian Peninsula and in the surrounding uh, waters with the Navy ships. So actual combat began in mid-January of 1991 called Operation Desert Storm. And this is the first audio tape. It's courtesy of the VA. It's the story of one veteran's experience in that war. It's 
name was Harry Lowe, is a U.S. Army combat medic and a Gulf War veteran. And today, Mr. Lowe continues to serve as a social worker at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. So, Doug, if you'll please roll the first tape. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. This conflict started when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. I joined the Army uh, in 1988. It was probably two weeks after two weeks after my 18th birthday. I had two older brothers that went to the Army, so I kind of followed in their footsteps. I saw how they were able to get away and do something with their lives, so I, I followed suit. So two years in, I was stationed at Fort Hood. I was a medic, combat medic in the engineering unit. As a medic, I stayed out in the field a lot, going out with the field units, two, three weeks at a time out in the field. So I recall being out in the field during a gunnery and us getting the news that we were going on alert, that something was going on in the Middle East. We're talking the days before social media and the Internet, so you don't get a full story. It's kind of word of mouth. And I remember them pulling us back in early from the field and coming back into garrison uh, and having a formation and our commander telling us that Saddam Hussein was showing a show of force against Kuwait and it was possible that our unit was going to deploy so we were going to be put on alert I remember landing in the Middle East right on the Persian Gulf and I'd never felt heat like that in my life then we loaded up vehicles and we just drove we, we drove down this highway and I remember just turning off the highway into the desert. And we just rode, it seemed like hundreds of miles just into the middle of nowhere. And we just stopped. We're all preparing to put on our gas masks that we've been told. There are sounds of planes overhead. We don't know whose planes there are, but air raid sirens are going off insistently. There are military convoys on both sides of me. We're being told to get off this platform and get inside into the air raid shelter. Once the bombing started, it was still not really knowing what was going on. You could just look outside your vehicle and just see the the, the, the sky lighting up with the bombs dropping and the, and the anti-aircraft missiles shooting from the ground going up and you not knowing who's firing at who or who's bombing who. We just You can just feel the ground shaking. It just seemed like all night. We spent a lot of time gathering POWs. There were these flyers that were, these propaganda flyers that were dropped from aircraft and, and a lot of the Iraqi POWs would come up and hand you these flyers. I have no idea what, to this day what they say, but I guess to them this was like their ticket, like, hey, uh, this is a war we don't want to be in. They were turning themselves in. A lot of us as the medics, we would check some of these guys out, make sure they were, they were healthy, take their weapons, load them up, or wait for someone to come pick them up. When I got back, my family asked me if I was scared, and I pretty much told them every day. 
you're scared because you you, you don't know. It, it's 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 every day is kind of like the unknown. You're in the middle of nowhere, so every day you, you're afraid. You're afraid that you're not going to come home. After serving in Desert Storm, I was uh, discharged from the Army in 1992, uh, and I started working at the VA the same year. When I started here and working with veterans and taking care of veterans, I knew this is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at the VA. So now I'm a, I'm a social worker at the VA hospital. I work with homeless veterans. We help them work past the barriers that kind of led to their homelessness. Um, which may be mental health issues, addiction issues, and we help them get housed uh, and teach them the skills so they, they can live independently. I love what I do. I love working with veterans. I love sitting down with veterans and, and just sharing stories with them. And I guess it just was something that was instilled in me, like I'm still in my combat medic mode. and every day just showing up like on the battlefield out to help save someone and just I just feel like this is what I was born to do. Well we'd like to thank the VA and we'd like to thank specifically a veteran Harry Lowe, Desert Storm veteran, for sharing his experience when he was deployed during Operation Desert Storm 30 years ago. I'd like to thank him also for his work that he does now with the VA as a social worker helping homeless veterans. Uh, Rick, over to you. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I was struck by his, uh, when he talked about turning off the highway and heading into the desert. And he just, he just kept driving into the desert. And he had no idea where, where you are. And, and I was thinking to myself, what, what that must have, what, what that must have been like. And he talked about, being afraid every day and you know that's the reality of of war i mean david you you've had your own experiences and i i never served but i've heard the stories and representing veterans i hear the stories all the time but you know that's the reality of, of war when you're taking these these young kids 18 years old from uh from high school and putting them putting them in those situations and and, and they're, they're then Impacted with all these experiences, usually negative impacts. I can't even think of a positive impact other than maybe the camaraderie of, of your fellow soldiers. But, uh, then you come home and you've got all this baggage. And David, you and I deal with these veterans when they come home. And so often the VA just turns their back on them. And, you know, I had, I had three Iraqi veterans today tell me, that they went to the VA and the VA told them that you're not entitled to benefits. And uh, clearly they were. You know, I was just, I couldn't believe it. So to hear this young man talk about his experience and, and what happened to him and, um, you know, he's, he's obviously turned something bad and negative into a positive by helping other veterans. That's pretty cool. But I just can't, can't even imagine being in that situation when you're just in the middle of nowhere. You're in war. Your life is, you know, your, your life is threatened every day, probably every hour of every day. So uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great, great story that the young man told. Yeah. Before we go to our next tape, I just wanted to add to it. I, I served in the Air Force. I was 
certainly not in a, a combat role. I was a judge advocate, a military lawyer. Um, but I remember that time frame uh, very well. Uh, and for those that know their history, particularly military history, they'll know that, um, you know, in, in uh, August of 1990, when Operation Desert Shield began with a massive deployment, it was the largest overseas deployment in 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 uh, in preparation for war that our military, our, our the United States, had done since Vietnam. Yeah, there had been a few smaller uh, skirmishes and invasions uh, in the 80s. There had been, uh, you know, in in a number of smaller countries around around the world. And and in the, in December prior to that, December of 1989, we'd invaded Panama. Um, you know, to get the uh, the, the leader of, of Panama, uh, Noriega. But this was the first really big, uh, massive deployment overseas. <clears throat> and so it was still, even though there have been some of these smaller shooting matches in the, in the 80s, it was, the 80s was a relatively peaceful time. The Cold War was going on uh, in the fall of 1989, in, in November, uh, you know, the, uh, the Berlin Wall came down, the Cold War was over, the, the Soviet Union was in the process of literally breaking apart, no longer being the Soviet Union. And everyone was heralding that as an era of, hey, we got an opportunity for world peace. Well, little did we know that within a year, uh, we would be going to war. And people think, well, it was a short war, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But think about it for a second. It was the beginning of now, 30 years later, a continuous, significant presence uh, of U.S. forces in the Middle East. And not only that, but there is certainly evidence to suggest that the attacks of 9-11 uh, by al-Qaeda were motivated in part, I'm not suggesting entirely, but motivated in part on the fact that um, our troops, had had a massive presence in 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 uh Saudi Arabia in fact still had troops there and uh this was it was viewed by by certain elements, certain branches of those of the Islamic faith that you know we had they had infidel, infidels in their holy land and uh and it was in the 9/11 attacks were in partly motivated by that uh even by the reasons given by by uh by al qaeda but my point being Okay, so 1990 to today, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, we're still wrapped up uh, in the Middle East. Who would have thought of that in the fall of 1989 when everyone thought, well, we'd have an era of peace ahead of us, hopefully, with the end of the Cold War? Not so and not at all. Okay, now, um, our next tape, Rick, if you want to introduce our next tape here. I will, and uh, just to I'll tell you where I was when, when it all started, I was actually driving across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge with with my family. We're wow. heading south. And I don't know if anyone's been on the, the bridge before, but you actually... I've been on it. I don't enjoy driving. I, I drove on a number of times many decades ago. Did yeah, not it's about enjoy seven, it. It's about 17 miles. Did not and, but there's it. a part where you literally go underwater <laughs> for about 100 feet, where it goes down, it submerges underneath, uh, and then comes up. And I remember... Coming up on the other side, and you could see all these ships. And at that time, I 
didn't really know what was going on. But there were, it was just a, a, a more ships than I'd ever seen in my life just sitting out there. And uh, I guess they're getting ready to go. Uh, the next uh, tape we have is we're going to hear from retired General Colin Powell, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff when Operation Desert Shield started in August of 1990. The now 83-year-old veteran said the 30th anniversary of the January 1991 start of combat operation known as Operation Desert Storm is an, is an opportunity for all Americans to appreciate the work Desert Storm veterans did in service of their country. Doug, please roll tape number two, which is also courtesy of the VA. We have to make sure that when we go to war, we go to war for a reason. We have to make sure that we've done everything we can to try not to have a war. But if one comes, fight it. And fight it to the death. Fight it so they know that America cannot be challenged in this way. The day came when I received an order from President Bush that I sent to General Schwarzkopf saying, start the conflict. The Norman and I had a common view of how to deal with it. We started the conflict with air power. And air power did a great job in softening the battlefield. But everybody could tell that the ground war was going to start sooner. Norm had prepared for it months before it happened. The Iraqis did not know what they were getting into. They did not know what they were facing. And so they tried to get ready for it. They did everything to try to slow us down when the time came. General Schwarzkopf, myself, and all of the other commanders and enlisted people watched all of this. We found that the way we were going to get through it was the fact that the Iraqis weren't moving around. They were just sitting there. And so time passes. We're getting more and more ready. We have developed a plan, and the plan said we will go around and flank the Iraqi army because they're not moving. I told our troops I don't want to waste lives attacking them head on. Just have them offshore, and that will freeze the Iraqis in place, and we'll go around it. The day comes when the war starts on the ground. And as that war starts on the ground, I get a call. Hey, something's changed, sir. What is it? The Marines have been able to penetrate right through the firewall, right through the minefield. They've been watching it for weeks and know exactly how to get through it. So where are they now? They are through it all, and they're heading to Kuwait City, and the rest of the Marine Corps is going right behind them. We got word to our commanders in the Army, get that Corps moving or you're going to miss it. It was only two days, and it was clear that the conflict was going to come to an end. Before it was all over, we had a situation that we took to the president one morning and said to the president, President, this is going well, and in the not-too-distant future, we'll come back to you and say it's time to stop this conflict. So the president said, well, if we're that close, why can't we bring it to an end right away? And I said, well, I have to call General Schwarzkopf. He's a commander. General Schwarzkopf said, we can do this. We can bring it to a halt. And that's what we did. Our armed forces fought with honor and valor. And as president, I can report to the nation, aggression is defeated, the war is over. People could not believe it was over. The 100-hour war, they called it. But it was over, and we succeeded. Let no one tell you otherwise. I was there. We freed Kuwait. I'm so proud of what those young soldiers and sailors and airmen in the range did. Well, I'll go to war when you want me to, but until we have to, let's see what we can do to solve the problem. If you can't solve it politically, then put all your power behind it and go and take it out. And that's what we did in Desert Storm. 
Well, thanks to the VA and uh, retired General Colin Powell, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, during that time frame, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. He later became the Secretary of State during the administration of President George W. Bush. He served as the Secretary of State during uh, the first of President Bush's two terms as president. Many people will remember that uh, General Powell, then Secretary of State Powell, uh, made uh, a presentation, now a rather infamous presentation, to the United Nations on February 5th, 2003, uh, to make the case to the United Nations why we needed to invade Iraq in 2003. And I think uh, General Powell has uh, since regretted uh, a lot of what he said because it later came to light that the information was incorrect, uh, whether he apparently didn't know it was incorrect, uh, but he was relying on the intelligence uh, gathered, which later turned out to be uh, false. But it led to the second Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq in 2000, March of 2003, uh, which, uh, you know, we still have, uh, have troops there. And uh, when General Powell says that the 30th anniversary of the January 91 start of combat operations, Operation Desert Storm, as a, it's a good opportunity to have a mem- Americans appreciate what the Desert Storm veterans did. I'd like to say that there's a larger opportunity on the 30th anniversary, and that's to reflect on the nature of diplomacy versus going to war. General Powell said, you know, we we should go to war as a last resort. If we do go to war, we need to go, you know, with, with full force so we win it quickly and 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 uh, you know clearly that we win it. Uh, sort of the, known as the Powell Doctrine. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, historians uh, can look back at the events leading up to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and wonder what could have been done more to resolve the disputes between Iraq and Kuwait that led to, Ku- to Iraq thinking that, that the only solution they had at that point was to invade Kuwait. There, there was more to the story. And uh, that other side of the story rarely gets told. But I think now is an opportunity. If you don't learn from history, you're going to repeat it. A couple other points I like to make about that. As I say, General Powell, uh, who was a proponent of, you know, war as a last resort, but if you go to war, go to war massively so you can win convincingly and quickly. He mentioned it was a 100-hour war. He was referring to the ground war because actually there was six weeks of the most incredible bombing by by the Air Force, by the Navy, by Marine aviators as well. And the wing that, that I was assigned to, I, w- I, still, I was still back at our home base in North Carolina. I later went to Saudi for three months in 92. But our wing, the fourth wing, uh, led by uh, then Colonel Hal Hornberg, deployed and uh, flying the F-15Es. Rick, and I know your son-in-law is, is, is an F-15E pilot now, but the F-15E mm-hmm. was, was the cutting edge, uh, not just air-to-air, but also air-to-ground version of the F-15. And uh, it was it was used um, uh, extensively in the bombing campaign, six-week bombing campaign that led to the so-called 100-hour ground war. Uh, so if it hadn't been for the six weeks of bombing, it would not have been a 100-hour ground war. It would have been a vastly different situation. But the other point I'd like to make about this is um I'd like to I'd like to quote uh from another very important person 
played a significant role uh, in this. I like to quote, I'll quote, this is a quote, this, and I'll tell you after I quote, I'll see if anyone can guess who this was. This was a quote in 1992. So after the shooting in Desert Storm was over, at that point we were enforcing this no-fly zone and other things in Iraq. Here's the quote. I would guess if we had gone in there, meaning if they continued the war and, you know, gone all the way to Baghdad to get Saddam, that I would, I would guess if we had gone in there, we would still have forces in Baghdad today. We'd be running the country. We would not have been able to get everyone out and bring everyone home. And the final point I think needs to be made in this question of casualties. I don't think you could have done all that without significant additional U.S. casualties. And while everyone was tremendously impressed, with the low cost of the 1991 conflict, for the 146 Americans who were killed in that action and for their families, it wasn't a cheap war. And the question in my mind is, how many additional American casualties is Saddam Hussein worth? And the answer is, not that damn many. So I think we got it right, both when we decided to expel him from Kuwait, but also when the president made the decision that we'd achieved our objectives and we were not going to go get bogged down and the problems of trying to take over and govern Iraq, unquote. Any callers want to call in real quick and guess who was that, who was the, uh, the author of that quote? Call in 1-888-627-6008. That's 1-888-627-6008. Before I, I tell you who that quote was, I, I also want to mention, again, the 30th anniversary of Desert Storm is a good opportunity to study the history, what led to that war, how could it have been prevented? There's a lot you can read about on the Internet on that. Um, one book that we've talked about on this show before uh, by author Kathy Beckwith, the book is called A Mighty Case Against War, What America Missed in U.S. History Class and What We All Can Do Now. Well, there's a, in Chapter 2 of her book, she has a pretty lengthy discussion of the 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 background to the uh the Gulf War, the 1991 Gulf War. What was going on? What led to the conflict between Kuwait and Iraq? Um, oil issues, debt issues, boundary disputes, just historical conflicts between the two countries. What led to it? And what role might further negotiations and perhaps arbitration of those disputes have done that might have prevented the invasion in the first place? Because once the invasion happened, you know, it, it, once Iraq used force, uh, there was obviously going to be uh, a very great likelihood that force was going to be used. But perhaps if they'd used extensive diplomacy and perhaps international arbitration, which had been used back in even in the 1800s and early 1900s to resolve international conflict, perhaps they could have resolved it without Iraq ever feeling like their only choice was to invade Kuwait. Uh, so... That's a, that's another lesson. Um, all right. Uh, anyone want to guess who was the author of that quote? It was Dick Cheney, who was then the U.S. Secretary of Defense during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, who later, and the reason I wanted to make that quote, it couldn't be more ironic, because in 2003, when he was then the vice president, Dick Cheney was one of the, the most um, adamant proponents in the George W. Bush administration to invade Iraq in 2003. So, you know, in 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 11 years, he failed. He 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 forgot the own lesson, the major lesson that he himself had had uh, had drawn from 
uh, the short war that we had. So, anyway, I wanted to uh, spend this opportunity in this show, think about the events of 30 years ago, because it was more than just a 100-hour war. It was a massive operation, half a million or more U.S. troops over there, a coalition of 100,000 of more from other countries. But it basically was the beginning of now 30-plus years of massive U.S. involvement over there, and um, that even arguably played a connection in the war eventually coming to our homeland in the form of 9-11 attack. Not that it was Iraq had nothing to do with it, but the fact that we had troops over in Saudi Arabia, uh, we were, you know, our presence over there was offending a lot of the uh, uh, the Muslims, and uh, it was a motivation in part for, as I said earlier, for Al Qaeda. There are other reasons, but that was one that they listed for why they attacked us on 9/11. All right, before we go to our next segment, let's go back over to Rick Hurley. Any thoughts, Rick? Yeah, well, first, uh, first I want to comment on uh, Colin Powell. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's a great American. And uh, regarding that that uh, statement he made that you, you talked about earlier about the when he was at the United Nations, that is probably one of, if not his biggest regret, one of his biggest regrets. And, and he has he has spent since that time uh, going around whenever he he's being interviewed and that topic comes up. Uh, he does a big uh, mea culpa on that because um, uh, whatever got him to say what he said, and, I, and I've heard different scenarios, uh, whether it was his fault or he added to it, you know, who, who knows. Um, but he, he was relying upon other people, but he's, he was also in a position where he should have done his own homework. Bottom line is it, it, it caused uh, quite, you know, it, it moved the... It moved everything forward after he spoke. Um, and that's because you know, you, they knew, they, that's because they knew that if Colin Powell would say it, because Cole, Colin Powell was not someone, uh, that had a reputation he, for, he, you know, he was trustworthy. But yes, and that's exactly why Cheney and others, the so-called neocons that were pushing the war, they were pushing to invade Iraq. As soon as 9-11 happened, and that's because the reality was they'd been planning, they'd been wanting to overthrow Saddam since the 90s. And uh, But they want, they knew that if they could get Colin Powell to step out there and put his name on the line, uh, that they had a good chance of selling it. And for whatever reason, Colin Powell uh, agreed to do it. And it was a massive mistake because the information that he was peddling to the U.N. Um, turned out to be, in large part, false. Now, is, does information that's false necessarily mean it's a lie? Well, that, that's the difference between knowing and not knowing the accuracy of the information you give. But like you said, Rick, and I agree, he should have done more, particularly someone in his position of experience, having been a career military member, four-star general, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and now Secretary of State at that time. Uh, because what it did was it, it, it put the stamp of approval on uh, a, a complete mess, because I'll tell you what, the ironic thing was, when the United States went to war that second time in Iraq, they were violating the Powell Doctrine before that. They weren't going to war with massive, overwhelming force to ensure a quick victory. They were going in understaffed, unprepared, and it turned out to be a fiasco, the same fiasco that they tried to avoid, and that Dick Cheney 
said that they wanted to avoid in 1991. But uh, you know, another thing on that, David, uh, <clears throat> when I was a, a young lawyer, actually, I think I was I was still clerking in, in for a judge in New Jersey at the time, and we got into a discussion about uh, ethics. And I said, "Well, how do you know?" I said, "Judge, how do you know if you're not totally sure? How do you know if if there's an ethical violation?" And he said to me, he said, well, he says, you know that feeling you get, you, you know that feeling you get in your stomach when you know that something does, just doesn't feel right? And, uh, I said, yes. He said, well, when you get that feeling in your stomach about something, someone comes to you and they want you to do something, put your name on something, or, or proceed in, with a cause of action somewhat, and you get that feeling in your stomach, then you don't do it. You know it's it, you know it's not right. It, it feels bad. It smells bad. You don't do it. Well, in retrospect, looking back at the Colin Powell decision, he also said in one of his interviews that he didn't feel comfortable making the statement that he made at the United Nations. And and at that point, as great a man as that he has become, he should have realized you don't do it. But like you just said, you know. Something got him to go ahead and do it, whether it was the, you know, uh, Cheney influence or whoever else was in the room when they told him to go ahead and do it. He went ahead and did it, and that moved the ball forward. So hopefully next time we we're facing a situation like that, the person who has to make that decision learns from history and doesn't make the same mistake. Yeah, well, in this case, you had two of the principals involved in the first Gulf War involved in the second one, 12 years later, doing exactly what they had decided that was a bad move the first time. So it was it was really uh, a complete mess. And you have to think, you know, if, if, if we expect people to learn from history or to learn the lessons of history, and then those same people foul things up as massively as they did, you know, uh, you know, there clearly needs to be uh, a lot more uh, education and reinforcement of this. So, you know, and David, that goes to that, you know, the, the documentary that we put out, The Cost of War. Um, the Cost of War, as a result of that decision, we're, we're still feeling the effects of today. You and I are representing men and women who were impacted by that decision, who are today uh, trying to get their disability compensation benefits because of the injuries that they sustained um, being involved in that uh, uh, military, uh, you know, situation. So uh, it well, had a huge impact. Now, yeah, the country will continue to be paying for that war in terms of of uh, the human impact, but also things like veteran disability and veteran care, um, you know, for the next... Um, Oh, 60 to 70 years easily because you've got, you've got, we've been at war over there as well as Afghanistan, which is war and terror, which is a separate matter, you know, after 9-11, but Iraq was 2003, uh, and, and it's, and, and some of those young soldiers and airmen and marines and sailors, uh, that were young at that point, now they're, they're, uh, late 30s or 40s, uh, but, we have, you know, young service members now uh, that were 
that were born, uh, you know, the year of 9-11 or after 9-11 that are now joining up and, and going overseas. So it's, it's, it's a long-term cost. Uh, but we, we also tend to forget because Americans tend to be very self-focused. They forget that of the massive cost borne by the civilians and the other countries, uh, you know, the, the number, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Iraqis civilians and Afghan and Pakistan civilians, uh, that died, lost their lives, uh, and, but also the millions that were left homeless and fled as refugees to other countries, surrounding countries, who obviously were not happy that there was a war going on in their neighborhood that they had not started. And now they've got influx of millions of refugees from Afghanistan and from, from Iraq. And, uh, but it's, it's a mess. But that's why I think there needs to be a much greater focus on uh, studying and applying uh, the alternatives, uh, to war. And, uh, so we've talked about this on our show. Check out, uh, United States Institute of Peace, USIP, which is a very small start to that process. It's, it's vastly under resourced, but that's a, that's news for another show. Let's go on to our, uh, uh, next, uh, segment tonight. And that deals with the issue of homelessness, veteran homelessness. And this tape and this next segment is also courtesy of the VA, specifically the VA Health Administration's situation report. And in this uh, three-minute tape, we're going to hear from Mr. Uh, Buzz Bryan, who's the outreach coordinator, as he interviews Mr. Stephen Tillman, the Homeless Program Section Chief of the West Palm Beach, Florida VA, to discuss the resources available to veterans facing homelessness in Palm Beach County and the the, the entire southeast coast corner of uh, Florida. So, Doug, if you'll please roll the third tape. Hello, and welcome to this version of the Situation Report. I'm Buzz Bryan. I'm the Outreach Coordinator for West Palm Beach VA Medical Center. In today's episode, we're joined by Steve Tillman. Welcome, Stephen. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at the VA. Happy to be here, Buzz. I'm the Homeless Program Section Chief here at the West Palm Beach VA Medical Center. So, Stephen, tell me a little bit more about your role in the Homeless Program. Yes. So, uh, I oversee all of the Homeless Programs here at the West Palm Beach VA. So, we cover a large array of services. Um, the first and foremost, we have the Veteran Resource Center, which is here on the grounds at the West Palm Beach VA in our, in Building 16. And that's really our first point of access for any veteran that's coming in, starting to receive services or looking to talk to someone about what the services are available for them. So they would enter the, enter Building 16 and check in with our, our wonderful staff and can meet with a social worker that will do an assessment of needs to determine what would be the, the best path of them in getting services if they're getting off the streets. That's really awesome information. I appreciate it. So if a veteran is not able to come here physically to the facility, does he have any options? You know, what does he do? Absolutely. So the safety and security of our veterans in the community is really important to us. So what they can do is contact our Veteran Resource Center to speak with one of our social workers, and they can explore what the options are for them if they are experiencing literal street homeless. Okay. So, Stephen, can you tell me a little bit more about the Veterans Resource Center? Yep. So one thing that people don't really know about the Veterans Resource Center is that we actually have access to showers, 
a small food pantry, and actually laundry services. So if a veteran's coming in off the street and they would like to meet with someone, they can get their assessment, but then they can also access some of those services as well. So if I'm a veteran or if someone knows of a veteran who's at risk for homelessness, you know, where do they go? What do they do? Yeah, so they, they can contact the Veteran Resource Center, and uh, from there they'd be able to talk to one of our social workers. They'll either take some information or talk to that person directly about the resources that are available, whether it's here in the VA, VA or in the community in Palm Beach County or Treasure Coast. So thank you, Stephen. Appreciate your time and everything you do for our nation's heroes, as well as what your team does in the, in the community for our homeless veterans. Stay tuned and join us again for the next version of The Situation Report. The VA Health Administration, uh, for that uh, short clip on uh, one uh, VA facility's uh, homeless program. Uh, wherever you are around the country, if you're a veteran and know of a veteran who's facing a homeless situation, contact your local uh, VA facility. So, all right, with that, let's go on to our next segment of the show this evening. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some news of interest uh, to veterans. If you have any questions or comments, you want to share your experience, again, our toll-free call-in number is 1-888-627-6008. Again, 1-888-627-6008. 6,008. We've got about 15 more minutes on our show tonight, so you have time to call in. Rick, over to you. Yeah, the American Legion has many programs for veterans and its families. The American Legion <laughs> announced on its website on January 1st that children whose parents lost their lives while honoring, while honorably serving on active duty on or after 9-11, as well as children of post-9-11 veterans with a combined VA disability rating of 50% or higher, are eligible to apply for the American Legion Legacy Scholarship. Since the Legacy Scholarship's first grant in 2004, 401 military children of the fallen disabled have received over 3.6 million in aid. The Legacy Scholarship provides financial aid for graduate or postgraduate tuition, books, room and board, meal plans, and other supplies needed to achieve a higher education. It is a needs-based scholarship. The grant amount each scholarship recipient will receive will be based on his or her financial need after all the federal and state aid is exhausted. Recipients will have a year to use the grant and may reapply to the American Legion Legacy Scholarship up to six times. The number of scholarships awarded and the amount of financial aid granted to each awardee, this includes returning applicants, will be determined on do donations to the scholarship fund and one's financial needs. The Legacy Scholarship awards are made possible from donations to the American Legion Legacy Scholarship Fund. The American Legion Legacy Scholarship application for 2021 is now online at legion.org org forward slash scholarships forward slash legacy. Again, that's legion.org forward slash scholarships forward slash legacy for eligible applicants to apply. The application deadline is April 15th. Tax day. That's a good reminder. For additional information about scholarship and eligibility requirements, please Learn more at the website, again, legion.org forward slash scholarships forward slash legacy forward slash about. 2021 American Legion Legacy Scholarship recipients will be selected by the American Legion's Committee on Youth Education during the organization's annual spring meetings in May. All applicants, whether recipients of the Legacy Scholarship or not, will be notified immediately thereafter. Back to you, David. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, one of the big issues that um, some veterans uh, face is that of um, the loss of veteran benefits when they've been discharged uh, for certain types of misconduct and they receive something other than an honorable discharge. Uh, and although there are legal ways that they can attempt to get that discharge characterization upgraded, uh, this next report deals with really an ongoing systemic problem uh, that many veterans face. According to a January 12, 2021 article in newspaper Stars and Stripes, the Army will review thousands of discharge records of veterans affected by military sexual trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other behavioral health conditions following a class action lawsuit. This review is part of a settlement reached in the lawsuit called Kennedy v. McCarthy, which was preliminarily approved December 28th, according to the Army. The service will look at discharges of veterans affected by post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, military sexual trauma, or other behavioral health conditions. Uh, according uh, to this uh, article, under the agreement, the Army will automatically reconsider certain discharge status upgrade decisions made by the Army Discharge Review Board between April 17, 2011 and the effective date of the settlement, which should be uh, very soon this year when those uh, decisions either partially or fully denied relief to Iraq and Afghanistan-era veterans with less than fully honorable discharges. Also, veterans who were discharged and did not receive an upgrade to honorable from the review board between October 7, 2001 to October 16, 2011, will also be able to reapply uh, due uh, to the terms of the of the settlement. Now, this settlement um, is uh, still subject to the... Uh, District, federal district courts uh, review and approval. There is going to be a hearing which you can access uh, online about this uh, proposed settlement, which will occur on March the 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. If you want more information about this settlement, because this is a big topic for a lot of veterans who receive so-called bad paper, meaning other than honorable uh, discharge from the service, go to the website kennedysettlement.com. Again, that's KennedySettlement.com. They can also go to the website for the Army Discharge Review Board. Just Google Army Discharge Review Board, and uh, you'll find the website uh, for that. But uh, it's pretty extensive, and a lot of thanks for this uh, successful matter uh, belongs to uh, the Veterans Legal Services Clinic at, uh, at Yale Law School. They played a big role in this. Uh, the lawsuit was filed almost four years ago in the District Court of Connecticut by two Army combat veterans, Steve Kennedy and Alicia Carson, both of whom suffered from PTSD and other health conditions, but were given a general discharge despite their medical issues. So this is basically a class action lawsuit, uh, and it's, uh, it's going after the Army because the Army Discharge Review Board was basically making short shrift of these issues. They weren't really considering these issues fairly or appropriately. And thank goodness, organizations like uh, the Yale Law School Veterans Legal Services Clinic uh, and uh, and others uh, took this on and made a class action because thousands and thousands are affected by it. And it's a lot more efficient to handle it this way and force the Army to, to have, you know, massive do-over than have to fight this on just a case-by-case -case basis. Now, 
the settlement doesn't mean that all these veterans are going to automatically have their discharge characterization upgraded. It still will be dependent on the facts of their particular case. And to that extent, it still is uh, somewhat of a, of a case-by-case determination. But the, but the bottom line is uh, this settlement, uh, assuming it is approved by the judge, is a huge step forward. will make it a lot easier for these uh, veterans. Okay, over to you, Rick. In COVID-related news from the VA, the Department of Veteran Affairs uh, announced in the January 29, 2021 press release that the VA is trying to help address economic hardships the veteran community faces during the ongoing pandemic. As part of those efforts, the VA will extend existing moratorium on evictions and foreclosures until March 31, 2021. VA borrowers experiencing financial hardship due to COVID-19 can review VA guidance for for borrowers on va.gov or call 877-827-3702. Again, that's 877-827-3702 for additional information. The VA is also looking for immediate ways to help over 2 million veterans maintain their financial footing by exploring options to ease the burden of federal collections on compensation and pension overpayments and medical and education-related debts. VA will provide updated information and guidance for veterans at va.gov on this effort as soon as possible. Back to you, David. Okay, uh, on to news about the VA Caregiver Support Program. Uh, As part of the VA's historic change to the Caregiver Support Program, the VA began the first phase of expanding its uh, caregiver program on October the 1st, 2020, a few months ago, which extended the program to eligible veterans who incurred or aggravated a serious injury in line of duty on or after, I'm sorry, uh, on or before May 7th, 1975. So this is basically opening up to Vietnam era and before that, uh, those veterans. Up until this change, the program was only for post-9-11 veterans and their caregivers. So it's recognizing that that other veterans, besides the post-9-11 veterans and their caregivers, need this help, and now they're opening it up to the oldest generation. That's the those that served um, uh, before May 7th of 75. Now, the second phase of the expansion, which will be effective uh, looking ahead to October 1st, 2022, will expand the program to eligible veterans who incurred or aggravated serious injury in line of duty between May 7th, 75, and September 11th. 2001, that that uh, that remaining generation or so of veterans. Uh, this program offers assistance to family caregivers of eligible veterans, including education and training, a monthly stipend to help them financially, and more. For more information, uh, go to the website caregiver.va.gov. Again, if you want to learn more about the VA's Caregiver Support Program, uh, go to the website caregiver.va.gov. They've got numbers you can call. They've got a support, caregiver support line there and a lot of other good information as well as how you can apply to see if you're eligible uh, for that. And uh, one more item of news before I turn it over to uh, Rick. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021 added three new disabilities to the Agent Orange presumptive list for disability compensation. We've mentioned this on prior shows, but it's worth repeating. The three new additions to the Agent Orange presumptive list are Parkinsonism, bladder cancer, and hypothyroidism. Again, that's Parkinsonism, which is in a different, which is in addition to and different from from Parkinson's disease, which was already on the list. But Parkinsonism, 
bladder cancer and hypothyroidism. Those are three new uh, uh, conditions, illnesses, which are now on the Agent Orange presumptively. Okay, back over to you, Rick. Well, uh, I guess, David, we're ready, getting ready to close the show here. Yep, yep. And uh, so I want to tell everyone about our Coaching in the Care program. This program helps veterans having difficulty transitioning to home life. Returning home can be a tough adjustment, and loved ones can help. Coaching in the Care offers free coaching to help you help your veteran. Give the program a call. It's, the number is one triple eight eight two three seven four five eight. It's hours of Monday through Friday, eight a.m. to eight p.m. Again, the VA's coaching into care uh, number is one triple eight eight two three seven four five eight. In addition, I want want to once again remind everybody about veterans who are some who who are potentially suicidal or in a crisis of any kind the US Department of Veteran Affairs that's the veteran crisis line that number is 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 many veterans have committed suicide because they did not get the help they needed help them get the care they need to cope with their programs the problems I'm sorry once again that number at the veterans crisis line is 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 back to you David Thanks. Before we wrap up, I want to give a shout-out to my uh, nephew, Daniel, who serves in the Air Force. He's uh, in EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, and he's uh, getting set to deploy over to uh, Africa for six months. I wish him and and all those in his uh, unit uh, a safe and successful uh, deployment. Godspeed. All right. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to our show this evening. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, our sponsors, Corey and Hurley Law Group, which represents veterans of disability cases. I'd like to thank our producer of EBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom, and we hope you'll tune in, same time, same station. That's 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain Time, and 4 p.m. Pacific here on bbsradio.com, Station 1, uh, for another edition of the Veterans News Hour. If you're interested in being a guest on our show, or you're interested in advertising or helping to sponsor uh, this show or help us publicize the show, uh, always uh, welcome your, your support. And uh, input, if you go to our show's website, bbsradio.com forward slash the Veterans News Hour, you'll see uh, Rick Hurley and my contact information, our email and phone number. Just give us a call. Reach out to us. We'd be happy to uh, hear from you. Again, if you want to be a guest or you know someone who would be a good guest on our show or a sponsor or an advertiser, let us know. So with that, we hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, be safe. We hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.